1: I'm Kathy with a C. And I'm Kathy with a K. And this is season two of Killer Destinations. Today's destination is Dallas, Texas. From the 18th century on, the area of Dallas has belonged to Spain, France, Mexico, the Republic of Texas, the Confederates, and the United States. It is now the third largest city in Texas after Houston and San Antonio and the ninth largest in the U.S. The city has many claims to fame, including the founder of the American Football League, who was a Dallas resident, coined the term Super Bowl after originally being called the AFL-NFL Championship Game. The invention of the frozen margarita machine in 1971 and 7-Eleven stores originated in Dallas. And it was the home of the infamous outlaws Bonnie and Clyde, Dallas is also home to the nation's largest arts district, larger than New York and Los Angeles. And the Dallas Arts District spans 118 acres and consists of 19 blocks of museums, venues, and galleries, including a symphony center, an opera, and the Dallas Museum of Art. The Dallas Fort Worth area is located inside of the Bible Belt and is the home to three of the 25 largest megachurches in the country. The city also has the largest Christian population by percentage of any large metropolitan area in the country at 75%. But in 1987, the city's faith was tested when one popular reverend fell from grace.
2: As you all know, we're going to Chattanooga March 3rd through 5th for the Literary Inc. Convention. And we just wanted to say thank you to everybody who has already reached out to us to let us know that you'll be attending. We're so excited. We can't wait to meet you.
1: We also wanted to say thank you to Carol, one of our listeners, who suggested this case.
2: In the early morning hours of Wednesday, April 22nd, 1987, 39-year-old Walker Raley returned home and found his wife, Margaret, on the floor of their garage. She had been beaten and choked with what investigators believed was a thin cord or wire. Walker called 911 at 1243 a.m. 38-year-old Margaret, who went by Peggy, was rushed to the hospital in critical condition. The Raley's two children, five-year-old Ryan and two-year-old Megan, were found asleep and unharmed inside the house. Ryan was in his bedroom and Megan had fallen asleep in the living room in front of the television set. Walker and Peggy Raley first met when they were both students at Southern Methodist University. Peggy was studying for her master's degree in education, and Walker was working toward his doctoral degree at Perkins Theological Seminary. They were married in August 1971 and soon after moved to Oklahoma, where Walker was hired as a minister. They returned to Dallas several years later, where in 1980, Walker was offered the prestigious position as senior minister of the 6,000 member. First United Methodist Church. Now, although Walker was a plain, unassuming man, he was a charismatic speaker whose leadership led to a rise in church membership. In addition, his church services were broadcast on cable television every third Sunday, and he was well known for his support of civil rights efforts in the city.
1: Although there were no immediate suspects in Peggy's attack, Walker had received six letters threatening to kill him over the prior four weeks. The day after the attack, Dallas Police Lieutenant Ron Waldrop declined to reveal the details of these letters, but did admit that the letters were directed at Walker, and they criticized his efforts to promote racial harmony. Lieutenant Waldrop said his department was concerned enough about the letter's contents that they brought in the FBI to assist with the investigation and provided security for Walker at his Easter services. Walker had even worn a bulletproof vest under his robes during the Easter service, which was three days prior to the attack on Peggy. Previously, he had spoken out against a chapter of the Ku Klux Klan being formed and urged city leaders to work to ease racial tensions. At a prayer vigil at the church on the night Peggy was found, Reverend Gordon Cassad, an executive minister at the church, told the congregation that her condition was critical. Walker was hopeful that his wife was going to awaken because the doctors told him there was evidence of brainwaves. He remained at the hospital and had actually been provided with his own suite in the hospital, so he had a place to rest as he was keeping vigil by her bedside.
2: This to me is great evidence of the fact that this was a different time in our world. Right. I'm actually assuming he had to pay for the suite. Maybe he didn't, but no way in a hospital these days would you ever have that. They'd bring you one of those really uncomfortable pleather chairs. right?
1: Because <laughs> they didn't <laughs> want to encourage you. Let it. Exactly.
2: <laughs> Two days after Peggy was attacked, Church leaders from around Dallas issued a statement and collectively denounced racism and terrorism in all their expressions in light of the assumed reason for the attack on Peggy. However, at the same time, Lieutenant Waldrop said police had no evidence that the attack was committed by white supremacist organizations and now believed the threatening letters were the work of a single individual. Although Peggy remained in a coma, it was reported that when the couple caring for the two Raley children visited her in the hospital three days after the attack, they said to her, Peggy, your children are safe. They are being well cared for. And then they saw tears run down her cheeks. Just over one week after Peggy was attacked, on April 30th, a guard was sent to Walker's suite at the hospital to ask him to go to police headquarters for questioning. This was the third time police had asked him to go in for questioning since Peggy's attack, and he had declined the two prior times. Walker's hospital room door was locked when the guard got there, so after getting someone to unlock the door, the guard walked into the room and found Walker lying on the bed, unconscious. There were several bottles of prescription medication near him in the room. Dallas Police Captain John Holt said Walker had taken an overdose of pills. At that time, they did not know if it was accidental but it did not appear to be that way, so they were investigating it as a possible suicide attempt. There was no one else in the room with him when he was found. Walker was in a coma in critical condition. Police found a note, but would not disclose its contents.
1: Captain Holt told reporters that authorities had determined that the death threat letters sent to Walker appeared to have been typed on a typewriter located within the First United Methodist Church. This is why detectives were pressing Walker for an interview. They wanted to clarify some discrepancies that had come up, including Walker's account and whereabouts on the night of Peggy's attack. Two days after Walker's suicide attempt, his condition was upgraded to serious. The Dallas Times-Herald quoted unidentified sources as saying that the letter Walker left behind before swallowing the pills said, There is a demon inside my soul. It has always been there. My demon tries to lead me down paths I do not want to follow. At times, that demon has lured me into doing things I did not want to do. It has finally gotten the upper hand. The five-page handwritten letter also contained instructions for his burial.
2: On May 6th, almost a week after Walker's suicide attempt, His condition was upgraded to satisfactory and police expected to be able to talk to him shortly. At this same time, Walker's friends hired a lawyer to be with him when he was questioned by the police. Lawyer Doug Mulder said he was hired by people who felt that when Walker Raley was interrogated, he should exercise his legal right to have an attorney present. Walker's close friend and congregant, Ralph Shannon, said they were not hiring someone to defend Walker. They were hiring someone to protect his rights. Mr. Shannon was also very emphatic that the attorney was not being paid for with church funds. In a May 12, 1987 article by Jim Jones in the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, he wrote that a spokesperson for the First United Methodist Church made public that Walker was transferred to a psychiatric hospital the day before, 10 days after he attempted suicide. Ralph Shannon said Walker was voluntarily admitted and was on a leave of absence from his role as senior minister. Peggy Rayleigh remained in a coma and on life support. Police still
1: had yet to question him. Captain John Holt said Walker was physically up to talking, so police went out to interview him five days prior when he was recovering in the hospital. That was when Walker had first requested counsel, so the police, of course, left so he could reach out to his attorney. They attempted to question him the day before he was transferred to the psychiatric hospital, But Walker could not arrange for his attorney to be present because he was in trial. Around the time police interviewed Walker, Reverend Gordon Cassad said Peggy's condition had improved. She had been removed from the respirator and was breathing on her own. Tragically, Peggy was still in a coma and her neurological condition showed little to no activity in her brain. She remained in serious condition and doctors did not know if she would ever come out of her coma. In May of 1987, one month after Peggy was attacked, Walker's attorney, Doug Mulder, said that Walker had taken two lie detector tests. One, which was administered privately by an independent polygraph operator, indicated that Walker was not involved in the near-fatal strangling of his wife, Peggy. The other test, administered by the Dallas Police Department, was inconclusive, according to attorney Mulder. The Dallas Police Department did not comment on either of Walker's tests. Police did say they attempted several times to interview Walker to clear up several things in their investigation, but he was advised by his attorney not to cooperate at this point with the police. Mulder said he was not allowing Walker to be questioned by police because Mulder wanted him to have a chance to prove his innocence through polygraph tests. And what's interesting about this, calf is that this attorney knows that these polygraph results are not admissible in court. Right. So really, he was catering to the court of public opinion, which, of course, polygraph results resonate very loudly with the public, even though people who are connected to polygraph results know that...
2: Well, there's a reason they're not admissible. Correct. Two months after his wife was attacked... Walker checked himself out of the psychiatric hospital. The very next day, he gave a lengthy interview to the Dallas Times-Herald, despite the fact that he was still refusing to submit to an interrogation at police headquarters. He told the reporter that he did not attack his wife, nor did he plan for someone to do it for him. And he did not know who might have attacked her. As for the accusation that he wrote the death threat letters to himself using a church typewriter, he claimed that he did not send the letters to himself. He said, I've never been accused of being overly smart, but I am not totally dumb. He also said that he received several death threats after being admitted to the psychiatric hospital. He also talked about a suicide attempt and quoted from memory the journal entries he made the night before he was found unconscious. Walker said that the night in question, when he took the pills, he was very, very tired, that he had not slept for nights because he was so concerned about Peggy's condition. When he started writing, Walker said he wrote, there was a demon inside me. All of my life, people have seen me as strong. The truth is just the opposite. I am the weakest of the weak. People have seen me as good. The truth is just the opposite. I am the baddest of the bad. People have seen me as virtuous. The truth is just the opposite. I am the lowest of the low. The journal entry continued, the world thinks I'm courageous, but tonight I'm scared to death. The world thinks I've got the strongest faith in the world, but tonight my faith is wavering. Walker told the journalist that as he wrote the letter, he became so aware that his whole life, everything so precious to him, was slipping away.
1: The next day with a different reporter, Walker talked about how God picked him up after his suicide attempt. His attempt occurred after Peggy had been in a coma for a week and he felt for the first time that he carried a burden too heavy to bear. Somehow, he grew oblivious to the fact that he did not have to bear his own burdens alone. Had it not been for an act of grace, he would not be with us. In talking about Peggy's condition, he said he was not a pessimist, but not a blind optimist either, and doctors were not very encouraging. Walker told the reporter he ended his journal entry with, I let God down. My theology does not hold open the option of suicide. My understanding of life is that it is a gift from God. Suicide is like murder. When I take my life, I am taking part of God's life. On July 10th, 10 weeks after Peggy was attacked and left in a coma, she was moved to a nursing home in nearby Tyler, Texas.
2: A few days later, Walker continued what I like to call his press tour, insisting he was not trying to take his case to the public. It doesn't sound like that to me. I would concur. As somebody who used to do press. Yeah, exactly. That's not what he's doing at all. He admitted he did not have an ironclad alibi for the night Peggy was attacked, but said when you don't need an alibi, you certainly don't go out and create one. He said the fact that he could not account for every second did not show he was guilty. And Kath, understandably, Walker's conversations with the press was frustrating to the police because they still couldn't get an interview with him. Dallas Deputy Police Chief Marlon Price went so far as to say they were having to conduct their investigation by reading newspapers and watching television. I can imagine how frustrating that would be. (laughs) (laughs) And Walker had made a comment to one of the reporters that during this press tour, his friends had been reaching out to him, telling him that he needed a haircut because every time they saw him on the news, they were giving him a hard time for his hair being so long. Lieutenant Ron Waldrop said he did not understand Walker's reluctance to speak with them when he was talking to everyone else, and he made a point of saying that Walker's assertions that his attorney was in contact with the police were untrue. Despite numerous attempts to contact Walker's attorney, Doug Mulder, no one was returning their calls. Lieutenant Waldrop also said it was unusual for relatives of family members who had been attacked to refuse to be questioned, but added that it was certainly within Walker's rights to refuse to speak with them. Lieutenant Waldrop also said that there was a possibility that they would impanel a grand jury to assist with their investigation by subpoenaing witnesses, but they were not at that point yet.
1: Almost one month later, police were at that point. At that time, Walker and six other witnesses were subpoenaed to testify before a grand jury. Twelve days later, which was three months after Peggy Raley was attacked, Walker appeared before the grand jury. As we've talked about over many episodes, grand jury testimony is supposed to be a secret. It was expected that Walker's whereabouts on the night Peggy was attacked and whom he spoke with that day was going to be the subject of his grand jury testimony. So as you know, Walker does not want to submit to police questioning. However, he did speak with them after the police arrived at his home when he found his wife unconscious on the garage floor. At that point, Walker told investigators he was doing research at two Southern Methodist University libraries that evening. However, Captain Holt said they had indisputable evidence that contradicted Walker's accounts of where he was.
2: According to a July 27, 1987 article by Jim Jones in the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, Among the six witnesses subpoenaed for grand jury questioning was Lucy Papillon. She was a psychologist and described as an acquaintance of Walker's. According to Dallas County Assistant District Attorney Norman Kinney, mobile phone records indicated that Walker called Papillon from his car phone twice on the night Peggy was attacked. While the Assistant District Attorney would not speak to reporters about who the witnesses were, The grand jury bailiff told reporters that the other witnesses included a librarian and three doctors, but would not provide the names.
1: I think this is hilarious. It's supposed to be totally like double secret information. And the bailiff was like, yeah, by the way, here's who testified, but I can't tell you who they are.
2: I can't give you the names, but here are their phone
1: numbers and He probably had like a cigarette dangling from his mouth when he said it.
2: It is 1987. Right. (laughs) In the same article, Reverend John Yerrington, who was an associate of Walker's at the church during Walker's seven-year tenure, said Walker had turned over care of his two children to Reverend Yerington and his wife. But he insisted that Walker did visit his children and his children always loved to see him. Reverend Howard Grimes, an associate minister at First United Methodist Church, said some had criticized Walker for not personally caring for his children. But Reverend Grimes argued that Walker had never been the caregiver for his children. Peggy always did that. So he said Walker would be completely lost taking care of them.
1: Is that like the lame dad defense? I think it is.
2: (laughs) Where dads babysit their kids. Right. (laughs) My wife's not here. I'm babysitting. I'm babysitting. It's like, you're not babysitting. (laughs) They're your children. Reverend Grimes also said the children were getting good care and were adjusting as well as could be expected. And he said that when the children go to church on Sundays, they looked like they were happy. So I had a little note in here as Kathy and I were researching this (laughs) and it was WTMFF. I can't tell you what it is, though, because as you know, we don't swear on the podcast only. But honestly, Kath, I was really surprised to see this. I was surprised to see this, too, because what a silly thing to say. Well, I also thought it was interesting that the reverend said the children looked like they were happy. Right. About a month after the grand jury testimony, local newspapers reported that unnamed sources revealed some of what two of the witnesses said at the grand jury. So according to the sources, Walker declined to answer all questions citing his Fifth Amendment rights. Lucy Papillon, the psychologist who was described as an...
1: Why are so many dogs now suffering from health issues? Actress Katherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, said she's seeing more issues with joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health, their food.
2: What she discovered is actually the way many dog foods are made can create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many of the premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw a huge transformation in their health. She's made a 20 minute video explaining step by step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health.
1: And Kath, as you know, we have a schnauzer named Ollie. And even though my husband insists he is not, he is overly flatulent. <laughs> After I started giving him this food, I swear there was a reduction in his smell.
2: I love that. And I'll come over to your house now. Exactly. <laughs> Well, and you know we have a Vishla we call orange and she's a senior dog. And over the last couple of weeks, she has actually had more energy to be running around the backyard with the younger dog, the Doberman we call brown.
1: Or crazy. A little bit. <laughs> so if you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to badlandsfood.com killerd killer D and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D.com slash
0: killer D.
3: Of Walker's testified that she and Walker had been dating for about
2: a year. They had also taken trips together and discussed marriage, which, by the way, Kath, I saw somewhere noted that Papillon was not her real last name. She was described as a free spirit, and they said that she changed her name to Papillon because it's French for butterfly. At the end of November 1987, seven months after Peggy was left in a coma, Walker decided to move to California to pursue job opportunities. Lucy Papillon went with him. When he left Texas, he left behind his wife, comatose in a nursing home, with Peggy's mother now appointed as her guardian. And Walker also left his children behind so they would be raised in a stable, loving environment. Walker sold the family home where his wife was attacked after he was unable to get a job in Texas and was facing significant medical and legal bills. He also surrendered his credentials as a minister after receiving his last paycheck from the church. Dallas homicide Lieutenant Waldrop said Walker's move to California would not significantly affect the investigation into Peggy's attack. You know what's interesting, Kathy, is I was looking through all the newspapers on newspapers.com. So going Mm -hmm. back all these years, Mm -hmm. he was not the only Texas minister who was in the spotlight for bad deeds. Who else was? Jim Baker. Oh as my in God, Tammy Faye. Tammy Faye, his uh, Praise the Lord Ministries and Network. If you'll recall, he was caught not only cheating on his wife with his secretary, but he used church money to pay her off. They were super
1: famous television evangelists. And Tammy Faye, if Tammy Faye were around today, and I believe she's died, is she? I think you're right. There would be 7 million memes about this woman just based strictly on how she wore her makeup.
2: I just remember the eyelashes. Oh,
1: yeah. They like practically hit above her eyebrows. Like they were ridiculous.
2: They were like three inches thick just with mascara. Yeah. You guys got a
1: YouTube, Tammy Faye Baker. Yes. 11 months after Peggy's attack, ABC's 2020 did a segment on her case. Prior to the airing of the show, police released some additional information about the events on the night of Peggy's attack and Walker Rayleigh's five-page suicide note. So, Kath, it's my understanding that the 2020 information was revealed from a public records request. So five-year-old Ryan and his little sister Megan, two years old, remained with Reverend Yarrington and his wife which was an agreement they made with the Raley's years prior to take care of each other's children in the event anything happened.
2: You know, I had a friend whose parents did this. I was in the seventh grade and this girl, she had an older sister and a younger sister. Her parents did not have a will, but they were best friends with somebody in the neighborhood who had three boys who were the same age as the three girls. And the girl's parents were tragically killed in a car accident. Oh, my God, that's terrible. Their only living relative was a very elderly aunt. And I know I'm not talking like 60 or 50 or 40 for all of you who are younger than that. (laughs) She was well into her 80s and really wasn't able to take care of them because the kids were fifth grade, seventh grade and ninth grade. And so they moved into the other house. But it was just interesting. They'd always talked about it. They just never put anything in writing.
1: Kath, one thing that I read was interesting was that Mrs. Yarrington said Walker visited the children several months later. And I want to say this is like seven or so months after Peggy was attacked. And apparently Ryan began stuttering when he saw his father and he had had a stuttering problem in the past, but overcame it. So I thought that was interesting.
2: Yeah. And I saw that a psychiatrist who the Yarringtons had taken Ryan to said, probably best if he doesn't see his father for now.
1: I know. And, you know, it's like I read that in the paper and I'm like, what does that mean?
2: You know, I know. what I mean? Like,
1: it's like, you no just... other
2: information, of course, because exactly. he's so little. Totally. But I like... thought it was really interesting that Mrs. Yarrington was saying that to the public. Transcripts of two calls Walker left on his home answering machine on the night of the attack were also released at the same time as the information for the 2020 interview. The message from Walker's first call said, hi, babe, I'm calling you from my mobile phone. Let me be very clear. In 1987, it was mobile because it was riding in a car. Exactly. Attached to the car.
0: car.
2: (laughs) It's about, oh, I don't know. I don't have a watch. It's somewhere between 1030 and 1045. Uh, If you want to go ahead and lock the garage door, I'll park out front. It really doesn't matter to me as long as you're safe. The second call he made was at almost 12.30 a.m., about 14 minutes before he called 911 after discovering his wife's body to let Peggy know he was on his way home. In September 1990, three and a half years after Peggy's attack, FBI agents picked up Walker at his California workplace and took blood and saliva samples in connection with the attack on Peggy. This was a move seen as a renewed aggressiveness in the stalled investigation.
1: Fast forward to April 1992, five years after Peggy Rayleigh was attacked and left in a coma. Dallas Police Lieutenant Waldrop told reporters on the fifth anniversary of Peggy's attack that the case was still active. One detective was assigned to the case and they were working as new information came in. At that point, 43-year-old Peggy remained in a persistent vegetative state in a Tyler nursing home with her parents helping care for her. Ten-year-old Ryan and seven-year-old Megan had been adopted by the Yarringtons and were now living in Little Rock, Arkansas. It was also revealed that Peggy's parents had filed a civil suit against Walker a year after the attack, accusing him of maliciously attempting to kill their daughter. The theory behind the lawsuit was that Walker attacked Peggy as part of a scheme to kill her, Mary Lucy and be vaulted into the bishop's chair on a wave of sympathy.
2: And I read, Kathy, that Lucy's father was a bishop in the Methodist Church. Now, Kath, Walker
1: never responded to the civil lawsuit, so Peggy's parents got a default judgment against Walker for $18 million. As a side note, in a civil lawsuit, you have to submit yourself to a deposition where you're placed under oath and you answer all these questions. Now, you do have the right to assert the Fifth Amendment, But if you assert the Fifth Amendment in a civil lawsuit, you don't get to defend yourselves on those grounds. So they would have gotten a judgment against him anyway. He was probably like, peace out. I'm not answering anyone's questions. Anyway, so he has this $18 million judgment against him. The following year, Walker filed for divorce from Peggy. The grounds for divorce were irreconcilable differences, which Kath literally is a box you check on the form. This case was eventually dismissed, although it was not reported why. I am assuming it was filed in Texas. He had moved to California. I am assuming he simply did not pursue it. At this point, the family has not received any money from their judgment. And Walker, now in Los Angeles, began work occasionally as a preacher, as well as working as an administrator in a 400-member Presbyterian church.
2: What a significant difference from his 6,000-member congregation to now a 400-member congregation. Oh, totally. Just five months later, on August twenty fifth, 1992, a grand jury indicted Walker Raley on an attempted murder charge in the attack on his wife, Peggy. He was arrested almost immediately at the Los Angeles church where he worked. Upon hearing of the arrest... Peggy's brother, Ted Nikolai, said that he was excited and it was about time. He said his feelings had not changed at all. He still thought Walker was guilty. Walker waived extradition and was returned to Dallas the following weekend. His bail was set at $25,000 and a gag order was issued. And of course, Kath, as always happens when somebody is arrested like this, all of the naysayers come out of the woodwork. All of the people who wouldn't have said anything bad about him when he was being accused or looked at or whatever. So, of course, Peggy's family kind of led the way with this, as you would expect. Sure. But there were also neighbors of the Raley's who were talking to the newspapers who were saying, yeah, we never saw him around. He was never at home. He never took care of his children. But on the rare occasion we did see him and waved, he always refused to wave back.
1: See, yeah, people <laughs> come out of the woodwork to say negative things. Exactly. No matter what. It drives me crazy when like the newscasters are like stalking someone's house and then, oh, my God, look, three doors down. Somebody just pulled him to his driveway.
2: Let's go get it. Exactly, and And everyone wants
1: their fifteen minutes of fame. But they're always the dumbest comments. Right, the neighbors have nothing relevant to say because they
2: probably don't know their neighbors. That is a good point. The other thing I saw, Kath, and this I thought was super sad. This case was brought back to life, Mm -hmm. right? So now there were new photos of Walker in the newspaper, and there were now new photos of Peggy in the newspaper as well. This is what I thought is so tragic: is that you have people, you know, they're in a vegetative state. Many of us have seen photos of this happening where the person becomes kind of curled in on themselves. Oh,
1: terrible. Yeah. Yeah.
2: All of the limbs and with a very vacant expression on their face. And those were the photos that were being shown of Peggy.
1: Thank God the kids were living in Arkansas at this time. And that there wasn't social media
2: and things like that. Right. Like the parents actually could protect them from this information. Right. In November 1992, seven months after Walker was arrested, Judge Pat McDowell moved the trial to San Antonio, which is about four hours south of Dallas, citing local news reports and the widespread attention the attempted murder received when it initially happened in 1987. Jury selection was scheduled for March 1993. The judge also decided that for the first time he would allow TV cameras in his courtroom.
1: trial began on March 22nd, 1993, almost six years after the attack on Peggy Rayleigh. Kath, what was interesting when I was doing all my newspaper research on this case was that in all of the papers, they talked about the Waco standoff. This was the David Koresh time. You remember that, right?
2: I do. And what's funny is so when this happened, it was Jim Baker. And now that the trial's going, it's David Koresh.
1: I know. With Janet Reno, that whole nine yards. Oh, my God. Just the whole thing. That was so awful. Everything about it was awful. Everything about it was. Yeah. Dallas prosecutor Howard Wilson laid out the prosecution theory of what happened on the night Peggy was attacked. After sending himself a series of letters that included death threats, remember he was wearing a bulletproof vest at Easter, The prosecution said Walker tried to kill Peggy in a fit of rage when she learned that he might have been the one who actually wrote the letters and sent them to himself. They say Walker lost it and choked Peggy.
2: You know, Kathy, I read in a couple of places that friends of Peggy's came forward and said she had heard about the accusation that Walker was responsible for the letters like a day before this happened.
1: So according to the prosecution, after dragging his now unconscious wife from the kitchen to the garage sometime after 9 p.m., Walker straightened up her appearance and left her for dead. And so I think what they mean, Kath, is they think there was some type of scuffle in the kitchen. He takes her out. He chokes her into unconsciousness and drags her in the garage. But she looks disheveled because, you know, he He choked her. Yeah, exactly. And he wants to make it look as though somebody came up behind her and did this. So he like straightens her hair and fixes her clothing or whatever and then leaves. Prosecutor Wilson then said Walker traveled between his home and the SMU library to build himself an alibi and then was shocked when he returned home to find his wife still breathing. Now, during this trial, for the first time, 45-year-old Walker Raley gave his account of what happened on the night of April 21st, 1987. He actually took the stand in his own defense. He told the jury he was a guilt-ridden adulterer trying to cover his tracks of lust, but emphatically denied that he tried to kill his wife. The jury listened intently to every word as he spoke. During the two hours of his testimony, Walker sobbed and paused to look directly at the jury. He described his faith in God, his humble beginnings with an alcoholic father, his attempted suicide, and his innocence.
2: Walker testified that on the night Peggy was attacked, he left his house at 6.30 p.m. and went to a library on the university campus before going to Lucy's house at 7.30 p.m. He said on the stand that he only stayed for about 30 minutes. <laughs> Bone chicka I'm thinking he maybe should have exaggerated right, at that exactly. point.
1: <laughs> I stayed there for 45 hours.
2: Exactly. <laughs> at least give it an hour and a half. Come on. <laughs> he told the jury that he went back to the library and got there a little after 8 p.m. But after a little while, decided he was tired, a little sluggish, maybe a little hungry. So he decided to go to a nearby Texaco food mart while he was there. He got gassed and bought a Bartles and James wine cooler and peanut butter crackers.
1: <laughs> when I read this, I was like, wow, he has the food choices of an 18 year old girl. <laughs> I drank Bartles and James back in the day. Of I know course. you did.
2: <laughs> you know I did because you got it for me, <laughs> which I still appreciate to this day.
1: You're welcome. <laughs> You know what was interesting, Kath, when I was listening to this testimony. He was talking about I went to Texaco, I paid with a credit card. The receipt on the credit card said 853. He was so specific about all of it that two things leapt to mind. Number one, he was overprepared for his testimony. The second thing was that he was trying so hard to like track the alibi so that the jurors were very clear where he was.
2: So Walker told the jury that after leaving the Texaco, he went back to the library until it's 10 PM closing time. He then left the library and went to a different on-campus library, arriving a little after 10 p.m. and leaving around midnight.
1: And supposedly he went to the second library because it stayed open later.
2: Exactly. Walker testified that when he arrived home about 40 minutes after leaving the second library, he found his wife on the garage floor in front of her car. Her face was red, almost to the point of being purple, and she was gurgling and had something coming out of the left side of her mouth. And remember, we had said at the beginning, he called 911 at 1243 a.m. Kathy, he said he put his hand on Peggy's stomach to see if she was breathing because that's how they used to check their kids for breathing. I'm assuming that was when they were infants and they were in their cribs and wanted to make sure they were okay. I assume
1: the same thing.
2: And he said she was breathing at that time. He then testified that he put his hands on her shoulders and shook her and screamed at her to try and get her to respond to him. But she did not do anything. Her eyes were just glazed over. He also told the jury about his relief at finding his children unharmed.
1: Then Walker told the jury about his attempted suicide and read the note he left. Walker told them that when he wrote those words, he knew if he had been home the night of Peggy's attack, instead of with Lucy, what happened to Peggy may not have happened at all, or it would have happened to him. And it was his shame and guilt that would not go away. During cross-examination, prosecutor Cecil Emerson, who, by the way, was counsel at some point to President
2: Nixon. Which really surprised me because Nixon left office in 1975. This is now 92. This guy did not look old enough. No, he did not. He must have been a baby lawyer. He had to have been, like me.
1: Do you have any idea, exactly, do you have any idea, like, how he represented Nixon? Like, what he did for him? He was counsel at the White House. He must have been, like, a super genius or something.
2: Super studly.
1: Yeah. Anyway, so Cecil Emerson questioned Walker about propositioning another woman in his congregation and about having sex with Miss Papillon in a Dallas hotel during Holy Week before Easter. Obviously, he's trying to impugn his character. Pretty easy, low yeah. hanging fruit. An earlier ruling actually prohibited the prosecution from asking Walker about surrendering custody of his children or his failed attempt to divorce his wife in 1989. So the prosecutor asked Walker, This is all your guilt, right? He was referring to the suicide note. You have not said one word, have you, Dr. Raley, about your poor, injured, damaged, almost dead wife. Not one time today have you said anything about her, have you? It's all about Walker Raley, isn't it? Poor me, right? Walker Raley responded that he was simply admitting the error of his ways in betraying his marriage and his wife. The prosecutor also asked questions like, what did your wife think when she found out you wrote those threatening letters to yourself? And Walker's response was that he did not write those letters. However, The prosecutor called experts from the FBI to the stand who revealed there was a high likelihood that the threatening letters were actually written using the typewriter from the church. And while you can argue another member of the church could have written them, the prosecutor also presented a DNA expert who testified that he found Walker's DNA on the stamps put on the envelopes that the letters were sent in.
2: Defense attorney Roy Barrera Jr. said in his closing argument that Walker had not acted like a cold-blooded killer. He was the victim of slander, libel, lies, and yellow journalism. Attorney Barrera insisted that the state failed miserably to prove Walker tried to kill his wife, saying to the jury, would you bet your life on this evidence beyond a reasonable doubt? You'd stake your life on it? I don't believe so. Now, in closing argument, the prosecution told the jury that Walker was unable to account for all of his time the night Peggy was attacked. And as they had presented in their theory, there were huge gaps in the time he allegedly spent at the two libraries. And Kath, the prosecutor also mocked Walker's testimony. You talked about him sobbing and kind of looking to the jury. Uh Kath and I both watched the YouTube videos of the trial, and it was funny because he did, quote unquote, sob to the jury. There was a dry eye in every house. Like Totally. You couldn't, like, I did not see a live tear coming from his eyes. And his eyes weren't even red. So it wasn't even like he was trying to hold back tears. Yeah, no. Really, next time he needs to use Kleenex to, like, make it look like he's dabbing tears. Or something. Or something. Yeah. Prosecutor Wilson said that when Walker was up there, he was crying crocodile tears as he talked about his wife. But where were those tears when she was convulsing on that hard, cold, concrete floor? Nobody said he had tears then, did they? Prosecutor Wilson also denounced the alibi explanation, saying Walker wanted the jury to believe the state's witnesses had lied in a giant conspiracy to get Walker-Raley. Prosecutor Wilson essentially summarized Walker's testimony this way. Now, I'll admit I lied to my wife, I lied to my congregation, I lied to the police, but believe what I'm telling you now. And Kath, interestingly, the same day as closing arguments, Walker was served with papers by Peggy's parents requesting a legal separation from his comatose wife and demanding financial support. The lawsuit was filed in a Los Angeles court and the attorney who was representing Peggy's parents obtained a court order from a Los Angeles judge ordering Walker not to spend any of his assets except for normal living expenses.
1: On April 16 1993, after four weeks of trial and four days of deliberation, the jury returned with a verdict. Not guilty. Jurors said they were not presented with enough evidence to find Walker guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Outside of court, Walker said that life had started over for him. After his acquittal, Walker Raley was ordered to pay the Yarringtons $400 a month in child support. He also reached an agreement with Peggy's family to forget about the $18 million judgment in exchange for $337 a month in alimony. And frankly, an $18 million judgment sounds wonderful.
2: Oh, they were never going to get the money. But if it's
1: uncollectible, it doesn't matter. It's a piece of paper. Walker split with Lucy Papillon in 1996. And two years later, just two weeks after his divorce was finalized from Peggy, he married his second wife, Donna. When they got married, he did not tell his children about his marriage, nor invite them to his wedding. By 2001, Ryan and Megan Raley were teenagers and lived in Houston. They had changed their names and had no contact with their father. Ryan was an Eagle Scout, and Megan, according to her father John Yarrington, was a first-class pianist and singer, just like her mother. On the day after Christmas 2011, 24 years and eight months after Peggy Rayleigh was attacked. This
0: is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call QuitGranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Left
1: in a vegetative state, she passed away in her room in the nursing home.
2: Thanks for listening. If you don't follow us already on Facebook, Instagram, or TikTok, please do so.